Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode 339. With that number, we'll give a shout out to retiree Carly Lloyd, who ended her NWSL career last fall, having played 9,339 regular season minutes. She spent two seasons with the Western New York Flash, three seasons with the Houston Dash, and finished up with Sky Blue FC slash Gotham FC. Gotham played its first games without her on the roster in the past couple of match days for NWSL and Challenge Cup. All right, two chats in this episode. First, uh, with my lawyer pal, Kelsey Trainer, We talked about um, the settling of the U.S. national team lawsuit. Also, the NWSL finally having its first CBA for non-national team players. But also, what's next? Because... The lawsuit's been settled, but not ultimately resolved because it is all contingent on a a new CBA for the U.S. men and, and women national team players. Then I spoke to Casey White, former U.S. national team player at both the senior and U-20 levels. We talked about the recent U-20 CONCACAF championship and also her memory memories of the last women's pro soccer game in L.A. back in 2009. That is until Angel City hosted its first official game hosting San Diego uh, a week ago. And the Jens Blainer for this episode, I talk about U-20 Women's World Cup qualifying and a little context about the U-20 Women's World Cup in general. So don't forget to follow me on Twitter. You can find me at MixZone, and that's two X's in MixZone, and at KeeperNotes. All right, Jen Cooper, keep... Blah, 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 blah. Start over. Okay. <laughs> All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Kelsey Trainer, my go-to gal for any legal matters, advice, insight. Kelsey, I know we're a few weeks late on this, but big, big news in the in the legal department for, for the U.S. women. Yeah, huge. I mean, it was what, two, 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 that we had a uh, $24 million settlement, you know, $22 million in back pay and $2 million in post-career charity money. Um, and so the, you know, the long... Um, awaited result of the U.S. Women's National Team equal pay lawsuit, uh, you know, has finally been resolved with an asterisk over it. <laughs> you know, it's been conditionally resolved, uh, you know, yeah. pending, <laughs> pending a, um, a ratification of the, the men's and women's collective bargaining agreements with U.S. soccer. And I guess the, the U.S. women get to decide how it's paid out. Like, I think it's going to be paid out over four years or something like that, the 24 million. Yeah. 22 I, million rather. Yeah. That's paid out over four years. I think Cindy Parlocone actually had said that on, uh, on a broadcast and then um, each player can apply for up to $50,000 from that future fund. So it's, it's a huge deal. And I, and I love how much press it got. And of course, I think it surprised all of us that it just kind of like, boom, here's, here's a settlement. Right. Because I, I think in my mind, it just got to, yeah, I don't think this is going to be settled anytime soon. But I, I see how from Cindy Parlo Cohn's perspective, especially with, you know, reelection on the horizon, she's trying to get things done. Right. And, and that's a huge um, drain 
time-wise, money-wise, on both sides. Um, so I was pleased and relieved that it got settled, right? That, that it's like, we've got other things to focus on. Um, but at the same time, it was strange, um, you know, when, when you're not not as informed, you know, legally, that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, they're originally pushing for 65. Here they are getting 22 plus two. Um, you know, from a legal perspective, is that kind of a normal settlement rate? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I'm sure I maybe have even been quoted saying this in the past, but I thought maybe the 20 to $30 million range for a settlement was realistic. Um, in any settlement or, or, you know, in any lawsuit, almost never, (laughs) unless, you know, you have all of the law on your side, um, everything going in your favor, almost never are you going to get that full amount. Um, and so, yeah, that's why they call it a settlement because you are settling for, for either less than you believe that you're worth or, or less than you've demanded. But that, that number is still a significant number, right? I think if it was lower, if it was, you know, around eight to 10 million, we'd be scratching our heads a little bit because that doesn't seem to reflect, you know, the years and years of, of potential, you know, unequal pay, um, and back pay. So, yeah, I think that the number makes sense, um, especially considering both sides have spent a significant amount of money on, you know, on this lawsuit in terms of legal fees. Um, and so I, I, I want to say, like, it is a happy medium in terms of ending this case. Um, if the U.S. women, you know, the they had settled the working conditions part of the the um, the case. Uh, I think it was December of 2021 or 2020. I forget the year. Um, so they settled that part. So this was on appeal. You know, they had a March court or March 7th court hearing on this scheduled. Um, there was a lot of things coming up. And if the women, you know, did win on appeal, then it would have to go back down to the trial level again, right? Go through a trial. Right. There are so many things that could have happened. It would have taken such a long time. Um, and so, yes, this to me felt if it felt like you should be, you know, happy and maybe slightly disappointed at the same time. Um, happy in the sense that it is really, it's a good amount of money. It reflects that, you know, us soccer is essentially acknowledging, right. That, that they were underpaid. Um, and you know, a disappointment in the sense that it's not that big. Wow. Like we won type thing. Right. But that kind of, that feeling went away maybe in, in May of 2020 when the judge dismissed equal pay portion of the case. Yeah. And I like how, how you described it's like, you know, it's a win and also a little bit of a disappointment, you know, that that's like, it's not that big thing, but you have to look at the big picture of, you know, how much time would be spent waiting for all of that. And I also factor in like the original number they were asking for was if they had, if FIFA had provided the same bonus money as they had provided the men's. And I always felt it was a little awkward to be asked. You're asking us soccer to make up a huge gap that FIFA created. Right. You know, I, and, and I'm glad that, that, Cindy Parlow's going, you know, we should all fight together to get FIFA to up the money. That's, that's the problem right there. Right. And you know, the people who were kind of running the scene, uh, when, when the lawsuit was, was starting, uh, and continuing are not the same people that are in place right now. Right. See, there is, there has been a shift, 
Um, I think it's huge to repair the relationship between U.S. soccer and the U.S. women's national team. And at the end of the day, right, like, yes, U.S. soccer is different than the U.S. women's national team, the players, but it's considered one, right? So you're essentially fighting against yourself because at the end of the day, you should all be working for the same thing. Um, And so that part of it is exhausting, right? Like you're fighting against yourself to succeed. Um, And so that part of it, it, it's it's just a good feeling, I think, I'm I'm sure for all involved for it to be over Um, and then to move forward on a foot that is, you know, both sides pressing hard for the same thing instead of against each other. Yeah, just where we are from two years ago, you know, this week, which is the week that, uh, you know, everything shut down. (laughs) Carlos Codero was, you know, pushed out of his role, you know, um, that we're in a place where there's, it seems like there's a pretty open dialogue between both sides, pretty good, you know, relationship. Um, I, I was amused by the the U.S. soccer elections that like when you see how close it was for Cindy Parlow, it's, it's a good reminder of how there's so many different stakeholders in U.S. soccer. It's not just the national teams, right? You know, where you've got the state associations, both youth and adult that are like, why is our money going to these players? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's a whole, se- that's a whole separate issue. Um, but the big conditional, the big asterisk that you mentioned at the beginning, like, that is still pretty big um, that for the first time they're working on, you know, an an agreement between both national teams together, right? That the men and women aren't negotiating separately. Is that, is that how I understand it? I, I think they're negotiating separately, but at the same time, like my understanding is that there are going to be like two separate CBAs but they're uh-huh. not going to be radically different as opposed in terms of the structure, you know, how they were the last time. Um, so I think that's my understanding of it. Um, and that essentially the men, the men's national team, like they are going to have to take a, a pay cut of a sort. Right. Um, right. To, to equal out that, you know, to equal out that money. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's going to be the, maybe the sticking point. Um, but again, I don't know if that's a battle that the U S men's national team wants to take on at this point. Um, because whether they believe they're entitled to it or not, uh, it's not a good look in the, the court of public opinion, you know, after right. they just won this equal pay lawsuit to then be, you know, essentially fighting, um, for <laughs> fighting yeah. against that. So, <laughs> Uh, my, I, I think it'll get done just because I don't know how you're the U.S. women's national team and Cindy Parlow Cohen and you go out there and you tout this, you know, this equal pay settlement um, nationally, internationally, all over the world without, you know, having a good feeling that you're going to actually get a CBA done. Uh, because then, it, like, what's it all for, right? Like, what was it all for? Um, you know, maybe it could have been to get Cindy Parlocone elected, right? To 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 have better opportunities going forward because this came out, you know, before the election that she won. Um, you know, she had she had hired what Sally Yates to investigate everything going on within the NWSL. Uh, she had the eight year Turner deal, so she had a lot of things going for her, but she also still only won by a pretty narrow margin. Um, so. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a lot of different factors, but I, I definitely think that, you know, 
there's got to be something in the works that that's close um or else again what's what's it what was it all for and it's it's mind-boggling to realize that what the men have been operating without a CBA I think since the end of 2018 or something like that yep. and and the women are like what they're on a memo of understanding or something that it's a lot of fluidity there. <laughs> a, a lot of fluidity, but right. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, one needs the other, at least the way that everything is set up now. Um, so the fact that you have the lawsuit ended and the women's national team players are not working against us soccer and us soccer is not working against the us women's national team players. Um, it's really hard to get anything done in those conditions. There's such a level of distrust from like a negotiation standpoint. Uh, so now you can enter into the, you know, the CBA process, which has been ongoing, but you can enter into the final stages of negotiations with a bit more, um, you know, kind of understanding of, of good faith between the parties. Yeah. And, and I think that might be the most important part that really has been settled without an asterisk is that there's, kind of open communication. There's really good two-way communication and it seems a lot less, um, you know, combative than it was just, uh, you know, just two years ago. Absolutely. For sure. 100%. So I, you know, like it's such a big legal year. Should we call this like the, the successful legal year of women's (laughs) soccer where, you know, the, the NWSL, you know, they got their first CBA, which is insane that what we're into the 10th year. Of the right. And they have that. And then you've got this, this big settlement. And, and I know this might be a loaded question, but this, this is how we're going to wrap it up. So like, when you think of everything that happened in 2021, because of finally having an anti-harassment policy established for the league and distributed all the teams and hung up in all of the, the locker rooms, um, you know, is is there going to be anything else that comes out of that? Like 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 is 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 there something we should be prepared for? You know? I mean, listen, with the NWSL, I just cannot ever rule anything out. Um, and it's something I want to mention, right? Like the harassment policy that the NWSL implemented and went out. That that's great. I'm so glad that it exists. It, that exists and, and that people are aware of it. But that's that's a catch all for like laws that already exist. And so, and the things that many of the people in the NWSL who are no longer there, all of those things that they were doing were already illegal under like laws, right? Not, not, not just the NWSL's anti-harassment policy, but like federal and state laws. So it's also like the education aspect of it, of like letting these players and, and front office staff and people know that, this is how you're expected to be treated when you're at work, right? This is what's okay. This is what's not. Um, And I think, you know, the legal aspect of having that new policy implemented and, you know, having the, the, the new NWSL CBA and the U S women's national team stuff is that like, so often as women, we kind of are in that happy to be here place. Right. And Mm -hmm. you don't push for the things that are needed to protect because you think they're, it's all going to be taken away. And so to me, all of this legal stuff really does signify that women are pushing to not be in that position anymore. We're not happy to be here. You're lucky to have us here and we are going to be protected 
every possible way that we can, whether that's contractually, whether that's, you know, uh, legally speaking, we're going to make sure that we are protected in every way possible, shape and form. And we're going to have processes in place for when we're not. Um, so to me, that's what, what that signifies, um, is that reckoning of, of women just not really being happy to be here anymore, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because, um, you know, having, having seen the league from, from pretty much the beginning, like, you know, I wouldn't even say there was a lot of happy to be here as much as they had to sell that, you know, so much as, Hey, I'm lucky to have a place where I'm getting paid to play as I try to make other things work. Right. It's, yeah, it's just awkward though. I'm also so happy when I think about, um, how much the minimums have come up and, you know, to average person, it might sound still ridiculously low, but when the minimum salary, you know, for the 2013 season was 6,000, you know, and it's now what, 31, 32, you know, with all these things added on. And that doesn't even include your housing and, and other things right. it's like that, that that's huge. Um, you know, sure. It, it can move, it can keep moving upwards, but it's like, when you think about, um, you know, the owners and that kind of commitment to, um, you know, Hey, if you're going to, keep this league going you're gonna make it competitive and compete with the, the growing leagues in Europe. You, you have to pay that. And then also thinking back as I always do to the two previous leagues where, you know, WSA just had to go backwards with, you know, what they could pay players. Cause they started off with the, this is what we think people deserve, not right, what, right. what the market will bear, you know, and WPS was somewhere in the middle. Like let's how ha- you know, can we make it really cheap? Right. So, and Vucell was the kind of last minute we have to be really budget and and I'm so glad I, I feel like we've finally broken through that that ceiling of no, we've got to run this like a business, we've got to run this like a league, and if we want to keep the best players here. Exactly. You know, you know, it's exactly is- if you're going to be a professional sports league, then you have to act like a professional professional sports league. And that means that you're going to invest and lose a lot of money up front for the long term success. Exactly. Right? If you look at any men's sports league, those those owners, okay, those people who invested in those teams did not start making money for a very long time. Okay. That's just how it works. Some of them still don't make money, right? That's what the kind of, you know, uh, distribution share is for, right? So the, the notion of like, you know, women's sports being profitable is just like laughable to me, uh, because most sports men's and women's most professional sports leagues are not profitable. It's a lot of times it's, it's men's, um, you know, you know, entertainment factor, right? They're so happy that they own a sports team. It's their hobby. It's their thing that yes. they care about. Yeah, uh, but it's, they it's still, gig. they still run it like a business, right? Yeah. It's not a charity to them uh, because they do see the benefit down the line. If if they're investing, you know, you you just you couldn't have LeBron James or or Steph Curry being the peak athletes that they are playing in a league where they're making $20,000 a year, right? right. It just, right. Would, it, it, it can't happen. It cannot happen. And so 
yeah, we're getting there for sure. We're absolutely getting there. Um, but the conversation has to continue to shift. The narrative has to change. Um, and people have to stop speaking who are not educated on like the business of, of sports and sports teams and leagues, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that, that would be my one, that would be my final request. <laughs> I, I second that emotion. Definitely. Um, I remember um, when, you know, Houston was getting an NFL team again and, you know, hearing that, um, you know, Bob McNair had paid $700 million, you know, for the rights to the team. And I remember realizing at the time, like, wow, that $700 million doesn't even buy you anything. That doesn't buy you a desk or rent you an office or hire you anybody. That's just the right to sit at the NFL owner's table. Yep. Right? And I was saying this to a friend at the time. I'm like, that's insane, you know. And, and he explained, he goes, yeah, but in a couple months – he could turn around and sell those for 720 million, <laughs> like those rights, right? right. That, that, it, that, it, that it's like, you're spending that money up front because you know, you know, that down the line, you do things right. There's a good chance you can get, you know, big, exactly. It's insane to me that like general business practices and, and, you know, like the general, like, economic practices just fall off the wayside when it comes to women's sports, right? Like the higher the investment, the higher the return, you know, how long the ROI takes. Um, all of those things just seem to be thrown out of the window when it comes to women's sports. And I, it, I still, it, it my, no my, my blood boils anytime someone references WSA and says they burned through X million dollars. And I'm like, what, you can't say spent? Right. They spent, they spent about a hundred million dollars and they say over three seasons. I'm like over four years. Cause they had a whole year before they launched. And it's like for eight teams and a front office, that's actually not a lot of money. It's you know? really not a lot of money. Yeah. And you know, what MLS spent in that equivalent time period, I'm sure is tenfold. Right. But of course they never put those numbers right. out there. Cause they had three billionaires, you know, I'm Everything. sure it was tenfold yeah. and I'm sure they lost so much money. I'm sure yeah. the deficit was massive, but we don't, we don't ever hear those numbers. Yeah. In, in well, the, the, the podcast um, that ESPN did, yeah, it was 2019 where they kind of went back and looked at a lot of WSA stuff. And um, uh, Julie Fowdy was on it. She had a great quote where she was saying um, like they were talking with Don Garber, you know, the, like the final year of WSA and, and the numbers they were struggling with, like they were getting their costs down and their, their revenue was rising, just not as fast as everybody thought, you know, it was supposed to. And Don Garber told her, he goes, oh my God, if I had those numbers, my board of governors would love me. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah, it, it's all that perspective of, I, I think, there's still that kind of jump the gun of like, oh, it's women's sports, so it's not going to make money, you know, yeah. or the or it's supposed to make money immediately because the World Cup was big, you know. Like, there's just like, um, I remember, I think it was, it was Moya Dodd said at FIFA, and 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 I love this. She was like, women's soccer, and this was several years ago, but I think it still applies. She's like, women's soccer, it's a startup business. How often do you work on a startup? 
every single day. <laughs> yeah, and what exactly. she's trying what she's trying to say that FIFA does is like every now and then they'll go, "Ooh, look, look, we made a brochure about women's soccer. Look at us." It's like, great, that does nothing. Like every day, it's a startup. It's not a side gig. If this is your business, you know, all in, you're all in. You and I, yep. Kelsey, we are all in. And I know all we're in. preaching to the choir to anybody listening to this, but. Um, but thank you, Kelsey, for taking the time to talk legal jargon with me. And I'm hoping that that that, uh, you know, the CBA for both national teams will be settled, you know, in not too painful a process because, wow, it's it's been a long time for the men. And, you know, I don't I don't think the women should have to be operating under a, you know, let's let's just keep going until we settle something new. I agree. And thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I'll I'll come back anytime. All right. Time for a little gensplaining. The topic for this episode is the U-20 Women's World Cup. This tournament is held every other year, just like the U-17 Women's World Cup. Always held in even years, as the Senior World Cup is held in an odd year. So U-17, U-20 Women's World Cup, always held in even years. Generally, the U-20 tournament that's right before Senior World Cup is held in the same country. And the 2022 edition of the U-20 Women's World Cup, it's going to be hosted in Costa Rica, not New Zealand or Australia, mostly because Costa Rica was supposed to host in 2020. Of course, that event got canceled due to the pandemic. Now, players born between January 1st, 2002 and December 31st, 2006 are eligible to compete in the tournament. It's basically based on your age as of January 1st of this year. There will be 16 teams in the tournament. Costa Rica as the host, plus 15 other teams. Three from Asia, Australia, Japan, South Korea. Two from Africa, Nigeria, and Ghana. Three from CONCACAF, other than the host. So that'll be USA, Mexico, and Canada. Three from South America. They haven't had their qualifying tournament yet. It kicks off um, in about a week. One from Oceania, and that'll be New Zealand. And then four teams from Europe, which will be France, Germany, Netherlands, and Spain. The tournament will run August 10th through 28th. And the draw to put the four teams into four groups of four will be held May 5th. So I want to give you guys a little background. I know this is a longer gensplainer than normal, but it was 20 years ago this summer that FIFA first hosted a Youth Women's World Cup. That was the 2002 Under-19 Women's World Cup held in Canada. That tournament featured many young players who went on to become pillars of the women's game, like Christine Sinclair, Marta, Heather O'Reilly, Ashlyn Harris, Christiane, Camille Abeli, Anya Mittag, Monica Vergara, Farrah Williams, etc. Uh, and the U.S. women, they won that inaugural youth tournament, 1-0 on a golden goal by Lindsay Tarpley over Canada. Now, the tournament eventually became U-20 instead of U-19 in 2006. The U.S. women went on to win the title again in 2008 with a squad featuring Alex Morgan, Alyssa Nair, Sydney LaRue, Megan Klingenberg. 
And again, in 2012, with a roster of some current NWSL players like Crystal Dunn, Kalia Watt, Morgan Gatra, Sam Mewis, Kara Ricaro, Vanessa DiBernardo, Sarah Waldmo, and Julie Ertz was captain of that team. Now, the Americans haven't won the U-20 Women's World Cup since 2012, and they've never won the U-17 Women's World Cup, which started in 2008. But maybe they can do it this year. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Casey White, NWSL broadcaster, soccer coach, former national team player, former WPS. What else do you want to throw in there as a title, Casey? Oh, goodness. You uh, you did more than enough. I'm glad to be on here. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to you. Um, I thought about this a few weeks ago when I was looking at, you know, when's the last time there was a pro women's pro game in San Diego? When's there's the last time there was a women's program in LA? And I was like, oh my God, Casey played in the sky blue fc at la soul wps championship game back in 2009 sky blue winning the whole thing as as the lowest seed in the playoffs so that's what i want to start with um because now after this past weekend we have women's pro soccer has returned um to southern california so any fun memories of 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 that game um just, you know, in L.A., a pretty decent crowd from what I remember. Yeah, it was. I mean, first and foremost, way to make me feel uh, old here. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, no, it was – it's – crazy to think that a game hasn't been played there since 2009 and it's great memories I think about the rosters on both sides and what players were involved and as Sky Blue FC we had a pretty insane run to win the championship that year no one ever thought (laughs) that was gonna happen Um, and it was just amazing to really cap it off in such a great environment in LA and then obviously with the win but um, it almost seems like it wasn't as long ago now that you bring it up and I start thinking back over all those memories. Yeah, and just um, the format, that was the first year of WPS, and I thought it was a really interesting playoff format. So four of the seven teams made the playoffs, but instead of having two semifinals, the number four seed played at the number three seed, then that winner played at the number two seed, And then that winner played at the number one seed, who basically got a bye into the final, right? Yes. I just, I thought that was like, is a brilliant idea on paper, but it also means that as that number four seed, if you're going all the way, then you're playing three games in eight days, right? On the road, all of them. Bizarre. It was. It was a little bit bizarre the way it was set up. And I think initially at the time, you know, as the four seed, one, we barely snuck into that. So we we were making a push towards the end of the year. We snuck into that. We were thinking it's probably to a disadvantage. You would think you're on the road for a week straight. You're getting all these minutes in. Will we have time to recover? Will we have time to rest? And you're thinking for the one seed, it's an advantage. But I think, you know, sitting for a week was also not very great for Los Angeles, Seoul either, right? Right. They hadn't played a game in quite a while. And 
as that was happening, we were gaining momentum and going, are we, are we still advancing here? Oh my goodness. Cause we had been through a lot <laughs> of the team that year. And I remember Yael Averbush, um, she was my roommate for the eight days. And I remember us being like, is this, is this still happening? Like we definitely believed in ourselves, of course. Right. And any, anything can happen in a game of soccer, but we were, no one, I think outside that team thought <laughs> we would continue to advance and move through because the road to get to that championship and let alone win was going to be very difficult. Right. Right. And you had a player coach, um, cause you'd been through a couple coaches that season, you know, mm-hmm. and so Christy Rampone is just like, all right, everybody pack for the week. And then you're playing this team that just tore apart the competition, finished first by a lot, a team with Marta, Ali Wagner, Karina LeBlanc, McCall Zerboni, uh, what, Brittany Bach, or was she with you guys? No, she was with Los Angeles with as LA. well. Yeah. Yes. Um, Shannon Box, I think. Yeah. So it's just like, I, I was just, I had such a good time, the dork I am, looking at the Wikipedia pages <laughs> for that final and also the last pro game that was in San Diego, which was the 2003 WSA final and just seeing all those names. And it's so right. satisfying, right? That like, okay, it's coming back to Southern California. This is the first season we have the team at the league at 12 teams, you know, which means like 54, 56 more roster spots. Like it's just the growth thing just makes me so happy. Right. So, you know, when I talk to a player like you that lived it right in a way that I didn't live it, um, aside from making you feel old, doesn't it also make you feel a little like satisfied you go back it's like hey all that blood sweat and tears (laughs) wps maybe helped pay this off 100 percent. and i think it's funny you mentioned like wikipedia like obviously i lived it and i played in this game and won this championship i even took a look i was like who all was on that team we played against you know (laughs) but it's funny you mentioned that because you look at all the names of all the players that have not just myself but every single one of them um, just paving the way and seeing what's happening with NWSL and just the growth of the game, it would be so sad if things were the same, you know, if there wasn't any growth, if there we weren't expanding the league and the strides that the league is making, it's really cool to look back on because most of these names aren't playing anymore, right? So right. it's nice to see that we can continue to build on the people that came before us because we would have never had the WPS and those championship opportunities without the WSA and and the national team players before us, the professional players before us. So it's as it should be is the way I see it. It should keep growing. It should keep evolving and moving forward for the game. And I love, love seeing when I look at those names, a name like Gale Averbush where, okay, not still playing, but still working in the game in a very important role, right? GM of, of Gotham FC, Karina LeBlanc, GM of Portland Thorns, you know, Ali Wagner doing commentary, right? McCall's Raboni still playing. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's so great to see so many ex players contributing to the game. And I mean, you even have Julianne Sitch is on the Chicago Red Stars staff. Um, Heather O'Reilly's coaching at University of North Carolina. Like there's so many people. Keely Dowling is a college coach. There's so many people that are still involved in the game and and looking to improve it, whether it's at the collegiate level, you know, the professional level and beyond. So it's really nice to see that we're keeping players that have been a part of it within the game 
that they aren't leaving the game, yes. continuing to contribute and to continue to push it forward, even though we may not be able to run for 90 minutes anymore. So <laughs> I think that's so incredible. It's incredible to see. And it, it kind of makes you look at those rosters with, at least for me, like a little bit of pride in my former teammates and the players I used to play against that there's so much commitment to the game right now. Right. Right. I love it. Well, and let's, let's switch, switch topics now to something else from your background that I think, you know, probably a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, you know, you were part of youth national teams back in the day. Of course you got some senior caps too. And you just recently called a lot of games for the CONCACAF U-20 Women's Championship. Of course, USA winning the whole thing and, you know, one of a few teams to clinch a berth for this summer's U-20 Women's World Cup. Um, I realized a little while ago that this summer, it's the 20th anniversary of FIFA having a youth Women's World Cup. That first one in 2002 was U19. Now it's a U20 thing. And I didn't realize you were part of that pool of players. You didn't make the final roster, but you were part of that um, lead up to that tournament. So let's first talk about what's it like when you're a U19, U20 player, right? You're like, you're on your national team, but it's not the same as a senior national team. And you're still so young, but everybody's young, right? There's no 10-year veteran in that pool. What is it like to be on a youth team like that? That was my first ever youth national team experience. So I was never one of those players that had the U15, U16 age group experience. And it started in those years around the U16 age group. So this was my first time going in to that experience. So there was a lot of wonder and amazement, to be honest, a little bit of like, wow, I've, I've been able to get this invite because I was one of those later players to be called in and just a lot of, you know, honor representing the country. Um, I remember we had leading up to the World Cup in 2002, we had a joint camp with the women's national team. And I mean, watching Mia Hamm walk by, Danielle Fotopoulos, <laughs> Julie Foudy, training on the opposite field from us. It just what can be more inspiring than that? And wow, it was just it was just something I'll never forget. Just watching them come in. I was only 17 when I got called in and I didn't make the final roster, but I was a part of that group for a year and a half until the final cuts were made about a month before everyone left for Canada. So I have a ton of good friends that were on that team and are still friends to this day. So not only are you competing at the highest level there um, and learning a lot and growing and it's, it's really shaping kind of your next few years. You can look back and remember all the people you did it with too, right? I no longer play anymore, but still involved in the game. And so when I watch these players from this under twenties, I'm like, wow, this is great. They're competing at the highest level. They're representing their country, but they don't even realize like how much of their life is going to be impacted by those events. And those times together with the staff, with their teammates, and obviously in an environment where they're competing at the highest level. Wow. Wow. And just when you think about the time, um, you know, so that would have been 2002, you know, just a couple years after that World Cup. It's the middle of uh, WSA, right? So it's kind of this explosion of now there's a pro league um, that was also, at least in my neck of the woods, a time where it seemed like a lot of colleges were adding women's college soccer. We were seeing bigger crowds for 
college cup tournaments. Um, and that first youth tournament, I mean, that was huge that the FIFA did a U19 tournament. They did a U19 again, uh, two years later, and then eventually broke it into U20 and U17 with the first U17 world cup being in 2008. So now every two years, Got a U17 and a U20. Of course, in 2020, we had neither. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of course. We have, them, we have them both back for this year. So you called a lot of the, the CONCACAF tournament recently. What is that like calling a game where you're not necessarily going to be able to have seen these players before, right? Um, right. You know, it's like the U20s, they only come together really for these tournaments. They don't tend to play much otherwise some players may be pros at that age but for the most mm-hmm. part especially americans they're not they're college players um you know what is it like calling those games and how do you prep for those games well that's a good question there it, it, it's got a lot of variety actually i you know with the united states team being a u.s youth national team coach i coached about three-fourths of those players so oh, i was nice. lucky enough to understand the United States team a bit more and knew who the players were um, for the most part. But that was three and four years ago. They were 14 and 15 years old, just getting into the national team, not being you know at the collegiate level and so close to going even professionally. So that was a little bit easier. But you know, from a um, neutral standpoint as a broadcaster, right, that was interesting because I needed to really um, – expand my knowledge on all the other countries and nations that were a part of it. And CONCACAF has made such a push to have this new extended format for the under 20 championships where there's many more countries being involved. So everyone else, it was really interesting. And I was so glad that I was able to broadcast multiple games because there's not a lot of information. So I really took you know, those first games that I broadcast and most of the ones I broadcast at least twice, maybe even three times. So I felt that I could continue to raise the platform for all these other nations. And I took that very seriously. And the more I was able to watch those countries and get more and more information, the more we could show the viewer and everyone watching how expanded and how much growth is happening around the region. Um, I mean, if you look at Obviously, the final four teams were the most successful in Puerto Rico, Canada, Mexico, in addition to the United States. But, it, you know, Mexico, it really shined a light on Liga MX Feminil and how wonderful that's been for these young players and how sophisticated they can play. It showed Puerto Rico um, having a new coach just hired last year. Um taking them over as well as the senior women's team and implementing a style of play that really was working. And in their second appearance, got so close to securing a berth, if not for Canada. And Canada, we know, has had so much success recently um, at the senior women's national team level. So those four nations um, were great and very competitive. But what was really neat for me to see that I think when I was playing and coming through was all the other countries that may not have made it that far, but their players are getting the experience to play at an international level with stakes and with high implications. And and you can't replace that for these young players. Right. Right. And that's how, you know, national teams are built long-term, especially your smaller countries, especially the smaller countries in CONCACAF where they're not in a position to necessarily develop a league other than something that's, you know, an, an, an amateur league. Right. But that kind of exposure to, you know, the travel, 
um, the intensity of a tournament, playing against players that are better than you, and like you said, playing for stakes. You know, that that's huge. Were yeah, there any and, players okay. or teams other than those top four that kind of s- surprised you or stood out as like, wow, I wish I could watch that player more often. I, I remember the 2020 Olympic tournament, qualifying tournament here in Houston. There were some of the players on the Haiti team where I was like, wow, those skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there were a lot of players actually that I think stood out in, in a lot of the countries. Um, you're right about Haiti. I mean, there are a lot of players that play for both the senior team and the under 20s. Um, Diana Pierre was a player that stood out for me and did really, really well in the games that I was able to be a part of. Um, and, and I think someone to watch, you know, as they go forward. And I was also really impressed with the Dominican Republic. Um, There's a player, Jaslyn Oviedo, who plays in midfield. Um, She plays stateside, but she plays for the Dominican Republic. She's a midfielder that's just very comfortable on the ball, does very well in tempo and setting the speed of play for the Dominican Republic, along with a forward who actually is super young, only 16 years old. Her name is Angelina Vargas, just extremely speedy front runner up top. And you can just see that these players, the more they're exposed to that environment, the more they can adapt. Um, sometimes you just have to see it. If you haven't seen it, how are you going to continue to train and get motivated by something you don't know exists? So the more they're in these environments, I, you can see the improvement that's happening. That's, that's just so cool. And I, I love that um, I could pick up a lot of these games. You know, they were either on TUDN or uh, Fox Soccer Plus or FS2, you know, that it's it's like kind of like the CONCACAF senior qualifiers. We're seeing more and more of these games being picked up, um, you know, by different outlets and, you know, and ch- shown in multiple countries. Now for the U.S. team, um, you know, who are the players that you think will, you know, really stand out at the U20 Women's World Cup this summer? Well, I have to state the obvious one, which was the captain, Michelle Cooper. Um, She was the top scorer from the tournament, so I can't skip over her. She definitely led by example in the tournament. And what I what I really respect about Michelle Cooper's game is, yes, she can score goals and you know, a lot of the time that's what people look at, but that she does a lot of selfless work off the ball. And I think that's what makes her so successful is um, her runs off the ball, you know, really make defenders react. So it frees up space for other people. And I think there's a lot to be said for that in her game, which, which she demonstrated extremely well at the under 20 championships. Um, You know, another, you know, another two players that led in midfield, Olivia Moultrie, from the Portland Thorns and Talia Della Peruta kind of shared that holding mid role where they both did score goals and Talia Della Peruta stepped up for some big penalty kicks along the way. Um, but really, again, I kind of like those unsung heroes a little bit that dictate play um, and just move the ball and, and create, you know, that possession that the U S was really able to showcase throughout the tournament. Um, and if I had to say one more, I would say Alyssa Thompson. I was really impressed by what I saw. She is super quick. One of the youngest players on the roster besides Olivia Moultrie. And her 1v1 ability, I think, is something in the World Cup at the highest level that the United States is going to have to depend on um, to be successful there. 
And speaking of, you know, I mentioned different anniversaries, right? I also realized this week that, you know, along with being the 20th anniversary of the first FIFA Youth Women's World Cup, this summer will be the 10th anniversary of the last time that the U.S. won the U-20 Women's World Cup. Didn't win in 14, 16, or 18. Of course, we didn't get to have one in 2020. And right. I, I think the, the world was unfairly deprived of me official and Trinity Rodman kicking ass coached by Laura Harvey at, at the 2020, what would have been the 2020 U-20 Women's, Women's World Cup. Um, but talk about from your perspective, how important is success at a U-20 Women's World Cup for the future of a player, the future of a national team? Um, I mean, I don't think, for my personal opinion, it's the end-all, be-all, but I, I do believe that the United States, um, you know, does gain more and more confidence every time they win. And I think for it's a standard that is set throughout the national team program to compete for championships. So anything less um, through if you're in the inside of the program is not what they're striving for. Um, when you look from the outside looking in, you know, for an individual player, does do they have to win an under 20 World Cup to have the success at the senior women's national team level? I don't believe so, um, because there's so much more that comes from that than just hoisting the trophy. But obviously, if you, if you I bet if you interviewed any of those under 20 players, they wouldn't say that yet. <laughs> They'd say, no, we have to have that success. But that's what you want. <laughs> you want players with that desire. Obviously, as you pointed out with all these dates from 20 years ago and 13 years ago that I played, um, <laughs> I can look on the other side and go, okay, but there's a lot of building blocks, you know, um, to get to the national team level. And there's examples of players that didn't come through the national team system. Shannon Box is the biggest one, right? That was the right. WFA. And, you know, we can't say enough great things about her career and her ability to win at the highest level. So, um, you know, that being said, I think from an individual perspective, um, everyone has a different path. Um, but from a team perspective, continuing to build on the legacy of, you know, the United States and everything that the programs have done is something that everyone does take seriously. Well, and when I look at, who was on that 2012 team that won, uh, beat Germany 1-0 in the final 10 years ago this this September. It, it's it's mind-blowing um, how many of these people have filled into the senior national team. Julie Ertz, Crystal Dunn, Sam Mewis, um, um, Morgan Bryan, uh, let's see, Kaleo High had the game-winning goal. Um and I know there's more, right? But it's just like when I, I remember looking at that roster going, oh my God, right? And I think, and we've also seen in NWSL that, you know, a year and a half after the U20 Women's World Cup is usually when you have a strong draft. So it's like every other draft tends to be stronger based on U20, you know, like where they've, got, where they've gotten that that extra experience. Right. Well, there's something mentally that happens when you're a part of a national team program to kind of what you're talking about is you noticed a year, a year and a half later that those players are really making their mark through the draft or going into the pro game. And all those names you mentioned, not only just phenomenal players, but the mentality piece of what it takes to go through national team systems 
it changes you and it and it helps you deal with certain situations and continue to forge on and move forward. And I, a lot of times I don't know if everyone realizes that until they see it happening later on, right? Of what they're actually learning from a mentality perspective while they're in camps day in and day out and while they're performing on a world stage. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's so cliche to say, but it's like that experience is so invaluable, right? It's not necessarily... Uh, performance at a youth world cup isn't necessarily an indicator of of the future, but like you said, it's such a great building block for it. And it's, it seems so long ago. And at the same time, it's not that long that it's just since 2002 that we've had, you know, a, a youth world cup just since 2008 that we've had, you know, U 17 and in mm-hmm. reference CONCACAF's expansion in terms of how they build up to the U 20 tournament. Also we've seen with the CONCACAF W championship that they're doing more qualifiers. They want countries to have their teams in camp more often, right? Because you've got to keep doing the development. You can't have the situation where a team plays in this two week tournament they don't qualify for the World Cup, so they go dark for three years, right? Like, we want them to keep, you know. There's no way we're going to have a CONCACAF regional championship equivalent to the Women's Euro until we help all the other teams kind of build up, right? So that it's not just U.S., Canada, Mexico. Right, right. Uh, 100%. Uh, and I think it's just like anything else, you know, the more that there are, there are more qualifying games that are given for all of these countries, the more pathways and opportunities that are given to compete at this level, the more players in their nations get to see people and, and women that look like them competing and that and that's so big, right to be able to go, oh, wow, like, there is a pathway. Because they're look at those girls from our country, from Suriname, from the Cayman Islands, wherever it may be, that are playing against the United States, against Mexico in, in qualification games. That's the building blocks of creating more and more programming, more and more interest, um, and more and more excitement around the games in those countries. Yeah. Um, and we've got, you know, the U20 coming this summer, obviously U17, and they're games we can watch. Um, I know there's still some people that are like, well, it's, it's youth soccer. It's like, yes and no. It's kind of like the best youth soccer in the entire world. <laughs> I know. I know. I would, yeah, I would definitely um, rebuttal that. So um, having having broadcasted, I think I did like 15 or 16 games of the tournament and, wow. watched, and watched plenty more. Um, it's definitely some very good soccer to watch. And it's, it amazes me um, just the ages sometimes. I have to like look back at like my prep sheets. I'm like, is she really 15? Like playing like that? <laughs> you know? I'm like, that's insane. And, and I think it's, it's great for people to be able to see that, um, that there's that sophistication at that level. And you can see moments of things that are being implemented into, you know, these youth national teams that you can see a glimpse of something a national team player did at the senior level. Yeah. It might not be as quick. It may not be as against harder competition, but it's relative. Right. And they're starting to learn those different nuances at the game at 15 years old. I mean, that just shows you how much the game is growing and evolving. Oh, Totally. Totally. Well, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about all these random Woso nerd topics. And thanks for your great work 
calling those games. Always love, um, you know, that, that spoiled feeling of tuning into a game and going, Ooh, I know who that is calling that game. <laughs> You know. Oh, thank you. No, it's a it's a pleasure for me one to talk to you and to be able to bring those games to everyone. It's you know new for me being on the broadcasting side, but I love it. It's just another way to enjoy the beautiful game, playing, coaching, and now broadcasting. So it's a lot of fun for me. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four. First and foremost, if you were not already subscribed to my Keeper Notes Woso Google Calendar, you probably want to add that to your calendar. Just go to keepernotes.com, click on Wosopedia, and there's a link for it on that page, or you can search for it within Google Calendar by searching for Keeper Notes. I've included all the Challenge Cup games, the UEFA Women's Champions League games, April World Cup qualifiers and friendlies. I'll be adding the entire NWSL schedule. There's also a College Cup, um, Euro, etc. And in addition to the World Cup qualifiers in April, um, we've had a few friendlies announced for the April international window for teams that don't need to be doing qualifiers. USA is going to play Uzbekistan twice. Canada is going to host Nigeria in two friendlies. Australia and New Zealand are going to face off. Um, so, of course, I'll make sure these games are on that calendar and you know I'll add broadcast info as I find it. And speaking of broadcast, uh, Women's Champions League, it is so easy to watch now. Um, The second leg of the quarterfinal knockout games are this Tuesday and Wednesday. You can watch all four games free on Dazen's YouTube channel, and that is D-A-Z-N. That's definitely how it's accessed in the U.S. I know it can change country to country. If you're not sure how to watch in your country, I would go to the Wikipedia page for Women's Champions League. They tend to put broadcast info at the bottom based on country. Or you can check out LiveSoccerTV.com. The two-leg semifinals for Women's Champions League will be in late April. And then the one-off final will be held in Juventus Stadium in Turin or Torino, depending on where you're from, on Saturday, May 21st. Last but not least, always want to give a plug for NWSL merchandise. So if you need some merch, check out nwslshop.com or go to the website for your favorite NWSL team. They all have shops. Um, Most, if not all, are providing international shipping. Um, But there's more and more stuff being offered, which is awesome. We're seeing more and more licensing, too. So even places like Amazon and Target are offering official and to sell stuff. So snap it up. All right. That's it for this episode of the Mix and Women Soccer Podcast. Big shout out to everyone for listening or anyone who tweets about it, tells a friend about it, whatever. Um, <laughs> and many thanks to the Beautiful Game Network for hosting the podcast. Also to Sean, my producer, for putting it all together. But now she's anybody's girl.